Well, a man and his wife went to a country cafe, and they were on vacation. So the, the man was looking forward to a time of just kind of quiet as they were in a back road cafe in Tennessee. And as they were waiting on their food, they noticed there was a white-haired gentleman who was moving from table to table visiting with the guests. And this man turned to his wife and whispered and said, I hope he doesn't come over here. But soon enough, he worked his way around to their table, and he said in a very friendly voice, Howdy. Where are you all from? And the man and his wife said, well, we're from Oklahoma. And he said, well, welcome to Tennessee. We're glad you're here. What do you do for a living? And the man said, well, I'm a seminary professor. And he said, oh, so you teach preachers to preach, do you? And he said, I've got a story for you. And he pulled up a chair and sat down at the table. (laughs) Now, the man groaned inwardly, and he thought, great, just what I needed, another preacher story. And the man pointed out the window, and he said, you see that mountain over there? He said, right by the base of that mountain, there was a little boy who was growing up in a difficult situation because he was uh, a son of an unwed mother. Around these parts, people always ask you, boy, who's your daddy? And so this little boy avoided stores because when he went in, he would know, people would say, who's your daddy? At school, he stayed away from the other kids at recess because they'd all poke fun at him and say, who's your daddy? When the boy was about 12 years old, the church he went to got a new preacher. And the little boy knew that he would be asked that question, who's your daddy? So he would always come in late and he would leave early. But one day the pastor said the benediction so fast that he couldn't get out and he was caught in the crowd. And as he was trying to slip out the door, he felt a hand come down and grab him by the shoulder. And looking up, he was staring into the face of this new preacher. And he said, son, who's your daddy? Now, everybody around froze in silence. The little boy could feel every eye on him. And he was shaking as he looked up at this preacher. Now, the pastor suddenly sensed what was going on and with discernment that only the Holy Spirit could give, Uh, He looked at this little boy and he said, wait a minute, son. He said, I know who you are. He said, I see the family resemblance. You're a child of God. You're a son of the king. And with that, he patted the boy on the head and he said, son, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. And the little boy, for the first time in a long time, slipped out the door with a smile on his face. It changed his whole perspective. And now when anybody would ever ask him, who's your daddy? He would respond, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of the king. And then the man, this distinguished gentleman, got up from the table and he said, that's a great story, isn't it? And as he turned to walk away, he turned back and he said, you know, if my preacher had never told me that I was a child of the king, a son of God, he said, I probably never would have amounted to much in life. And then he walked away. Now, the seminary professor and his wife were stunned. And he called his waitress over and he said, ma'am, do you, do you know who that gentleman is who just left our table? And she said, oh, sure, honey, everybody here knows him. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. When we left off last week, we were talking about the blessings, the heavenly inheritance that we as Christians have. And as we turn again in our Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to see who our heavenly daddy is. We're going to see how God has adopted us, how he's chosen us to be his children. As you look with me at Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, it tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, if you were here last week, you'll recall that I told you as we started this letter to the Ephesians that verses 1 through 14 are one single sentence in the Greek text. And we talked about how this sentence breaks down, and we saw that in verses 1 through 6, God the Father planned our salvation. He predestined us. He elected us. In verses 7 through 12, we see how God the Son provided for our salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who redeemed us. And when we come to verses 13 through 14, we'll see how God the Holy Spirit was at work sealing our salvation, being the one who draws us uh, to God. Now, you'll notice that nowhere in those verses does it mention us. It doesn't talk about our part because our part was simply providing the need for salvation. We sinned. We created the need for it. As you read Romans 3.10, it tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. And if you look at the very next verse in Romans 3.11, it says there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. What it tells us is if we were left on our own, there are none of us who would come to God. Now, the good news is we were not left on our own. The good news is God was the one who was at work to save us, to seek after us. We find that all throughout the Bible. You can read in Luke 19.10 where it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In 1 Corinthians 12.3 we're told, And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the Trinity is at work all throughout the Scriptures bringing us to know Him. As you look at the Bible going all the way back to the very first book, the book of Genesis, you see how God was the one who was at work seeking after those who were lost. In Genesis, you'll recall the, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, were in the Garden of Eden. They had perfection with God, but then they chose to disobey. They sinned. And when they sinned, it broke fellowship with God. It separated us from God. Now, having messed up, rather than going to God and saying, Daddy, we blew it, what the Bible says is they hid themselves. It was God who went looking for them and said, Where are you? Why are you hiding? God knew what they had done. He knew they had sinned. Some people read the Bible and they think, well, God was taken by surprise when sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve uh, broke perfection in sin, God said, oh, what are we going to do? We have to come up with some plan. But as you read the book of Genesis, what you'll see is all the way from the beginning, God had a plan for our redemption. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that. It says he chose us in him, that's Christ, before, before the foundation of the world. When it says that he chose us, the Greek word that is used here is, is uh, eklegomai. This is where we get our English word election from. Eklegomai means to choose, to select, to elect. Now, some people look at this word and they think biblical doctrine of election is a little bit like the way the world works with this majority rule type of vote. And so some will try to explain election by saying, well, God voted for us. And Satan voted against us, and so we get to cast the deciding vote. 
Now, while that sounds good, the problem with that is it raises both Satan and ourselves to the same level as God. What it says is we can override God and his choice of us. But if you look at the Bible, it tells us that God is the one who chose us, elected us, and God will fulfill an election. All who are God's will come to know him. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's that point when we leave this earth and we enter into heaven and we are glorified. Now, the outcome of God's election, as I said, is certain. All who are called will come to him. The way you can picture election and understand it is to think of a big electromagnet. If you've ever been in a, in a junkyard, you know that they have these, these massive magnets that they'll, they'll sweep over the, the piles of, of uh, debris and trash and other things that are there. And as they activate the electromagnet, what happens is anything that has ferrous uh, metals in it, steel, iron, those type of things will be drawn up into this magnet. Paper, plastic, uh, any other type of trash, it remains, but the things that have this, this property in it are drawn to the magnet. Now, election is, is like this. There's something within us that is activated, and it's what draws us to God. Now, as we think in terms of this, last week, remember, we were called saints. The word we saw means to be set apart as God's holy people. So we're separated and drawn to God. Now, the, the question that comes for some when you think in terms of this irresistible draw of God, uh, maybe you've heard about the Arminian versus Calvinistic debate. Uh, this position about where does free will and choice and things come in with, with God's uh, doctrine of election. I'll tell you this morning, we're not here to settle a centuries-old debate. If you came this morning wanting to uh, have all of that settled, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, I've gone through seminary. I have two degrees in theology. I had to suffer through some of this in my doctoral uh, thesis. But I'll tell you what, if you want to discuss this further, I'd be happy to meet with you later and to go through it and walk through the intricacies of it. What I want us to walk away from this message this morning is with a greater clarity and understanding of grace. Because grace is what election is all about. The doctrine of election is about God and his great grace choosing us. The word grace, you'll recall, means God's unmerited favor. It means we didn't deserve it. And what election does is it reveals to us how we who, who did not deserve to be a part of God's family have been brought into his family. As you look at verses 5 and 9 here in Ephesians, you see that uh, as this letter is being written, Paul calls it the mystery of God's will. A mystery is something that we don't always fully grasp. And the Bible tells us we cannot fully grasp who God is and how he works. Uh, Isaiah 55, 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. He says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And if we're those people who think that we can fully grasp as finite men and women what an infinite God is like and how he works, we're not going to. There was a, a famous philosopher of the past who was named Anselm, and he wrote the ontological argument that said God is greater than that which can be conceived. And what he's essentially saying in that is think your greatest thoughts of God. Think all you can understand about God. And he says, friends, you haven't even began to scratch the surface. 
He says, if you can figure God out and put him in your little box, then he's, he's not the God uh, of the universe that he is. He is infinite. He's beyond our comprehension. A seminary professor I had once said, if you try to explain election, you might lose your mind. And he said, but if you try to explain election away, you might lose your soul. How does man's choice and God's choice come together? I'll tell you, I don't always understand the intricacies of how they work together, but I do know this truth. It just does. The Bible tells us that. As you read through the scriptures, you find it in places like John 6, 37. It says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. That's divine election. And the one who comes to me, our human response, I will certainly not cast out. When we went through Acts, in Acts 13, 48, it says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, divine election, they believed that human response. As we look at this doctrine of election and how the two come together, let me try to illustrate it this way. This is a picture from Monday morning. Uh, now, I'm sorry it's so dark, but it was 5.30 in the morning. And that's my daughter, Hannah, uh, going to swim practice. Her and her brother uh, get up very early in the morning to make their, their team swim practice. And as you can tell and remember, Monday there was a torrential downpour happening. And as parents, you know, sometimes you have to battle with your kids about dressing appropriately for the weather. You'll say, look, it's cold out, you need to wear something, or it's wet, or on and on. Well, as the garage door went up that morning and the kids are out there half asleep feeling the blast of cold air and seeing the rain come down, nobody had to say to them, get something warm and dry. They reached for their swim parkas that are there hanging in the garage. Now, a swim parka, as you've probably seen on a pool deck, it's waterproof, it's warm. It's what swimmers put on when they get out of the water and they're a little cold. Now, as you're thinking about this doctrine of election, I'm using this picture to illustrate it because what I want you to know is uh, the weather did not override my kids' free choice, but it certainly influenced it. When they walked out there and they saw it was wet and cold, uh, mom didn't have to say, grab a jacket, you're going to be cold and wet. They did it on their own. And this is a little bit like uh, how election works. Another way to illustrate it is a a theologian by the name of A.W. Tozier. He says, think of an ocean liner that leaves England and it's headed for New York Harbor. Now, what Tozier says is the destination is predetermined. That ship will dock in New York Harbor. That's predetermined. He says, but on board the ship are passengers. They're not in chains, nor are their activities determined for them by decree. They're free to come and go and walk around the deck. They can eat when they want. There's, you know, open buffet that's going on. They can sleep. They can play, lounge on the deck. But all the time while they're exercising this free will of their activities, the ship is on its predetermined course. Now, as Christians, there's both freedom and God's sovereignty at work in our lives. The Bible, as we saw in Romans 8, 29 and following, says all of the elect will be saved. That is predetermined. The way that our free will and other things come into this is that that God has us on this journey of life he's prepared us for. And what we get to decide is what does that journey look like? How how do the two intertwine? We have to determine are we going to waste our life? An example I gave this morning in the first service is uh, I went to see a man in the hospital a, a while back who was 92 years of age. This gentleman was literally on his deathbed. And as I was talking to him, uh, he was not a believer, but he came to faith in Christ. 
20 minutes before he passed into eternity. Here was a man that was one of the elect that was seen by the fact he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he had wasted his life. His journey and the way he lived had not been for the Lord. And so as a result, what he lost was not the gift of eternal life. God gave that to him. But what he lost are the rewards, the heavenly rewards that he could have had by living a life for Jesus Christ. All of the elect are going to end up in heaven, but some will have wasted and missed the blessings that God has if they had only lived for him. As you look at your life this morning, what does your journey with Jesus look like? Are you somebody that would say, I'm already on the ship? I've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I know where my predetermined uh, home port is, that when I leave this earth, I will be home with the Lord in heaven. As you think about that, are you living your life for the Lord? Now, others of you may be here this morning saying, well, Roger, I don't, I don't yet know if I'm one of the elect because I haven't come to faith in Christ. I'm, I'm here this morning because I'm, I'm wondering who this Jesus is. I'm, I'm hearing about the Bible and stuff, and I've, and I've got questions. I've got a family member, a friend a co-worker who's invited me, and I'm, I'm here this morning because I don't really know what I believe yet. And I'll say to you, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here to consider the claims of Christ. And what I'll tell you is the mere fact that you're here this morning, the mere fact that some of you are listening to this message, uh, tells me that God may be at work in your life drawing you to himself because you're curious and God is at work uh, wanting you to understand more about the gift of his grace. Now, if you're here this morning and you've not yet come to faith in Christ, the question I have for you is, what is keeping you from that? If you have legitimate questions, that's wonderful. As I said, we're glad you're here to learn. But some of us, if we're honest, would say we haven't yet crossed that line of faith because we know what it means for us that we need to make some changes in our life. And we're not yet ready to give up some of that sin in our life. We don't give up sin to come to Christ. Uh, But once we come to faith in Christ, God wants us to change. We talked about that last week, how when we are in Christ, God then talks about our walk that is to match our position. And so if the thing this morning is that you love your sin more than your Savior, I want to tell you something, you're wasting your life. Because all the stuff in the world, as we saw last week, is going to pass away one day. It's perishable, it's fleeting, It has no eternal value. And if that's what you're investing your life in, you will end up at home in heaven with nothing in terms of eternal rewards. The Bible says some will be saved, yet it's through fire. You remember when the thief came to faith in Christ on the cross, Jesus said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. But there were no redeeming things beyond that in his life. He was home in heaven, but he missed out on the rewards that would have been there for a life well lived for Christ. Now, when it comes to this doctrine of election, some will say, but Roger, doesn't that mean that somehow God lacks mercy and grace and love? Because if what you're saying this morning about God is the one who draws people to himself, then why doesn't he just draw everybody to himself? Why, Why doesn't it just become automatic and every single person is saved? Well, two things about that. First, that's where that question about free will and choice come in. How does it all work together? If God made us robots and every single person just automatically became a believer, then is there really free will and choice? Uh, I know what the Bible tells me in the book of Peter is God desires that none should perish, but all should come to know him. I know there's that desire of God to see everybody know him, but I know that not everybody will come to know him. 
So again, you're saying, yeah, but my question is, doesn't that make God lacking in love? Because if he could make everybody come to him, why doesn't he do that? Now remember, the core of election is grace. The core thing we need to remember is, this is all about grace, God's unmerited favor. So imagine this morning I reached into my pocket and I pulled out a wad of $100 bills. And and I've got these $100 bills and I say, you know, I'm feeling very gracious this morning and I want to give everybody $100 bills. And you guys are thinking, where does the line form, right? And if you're out at Stone Oak this morning, find Pastor Will because he's the guy that maybe has a pocket full of hundreds. I don't. I don't know about Will. But if I were to pull out this money and I were to begin to uh, hand out $100 bills, you just walk up and I say, here you go, here you go, here you go. And everybody's glad they're grabbing their hundreds. And and all of a sudden, I stop giving out $100 bills. And you're saying, but wait, 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 Roger, that's not fair. There there are people here who didn't get a $100 bill. That's not fair. Do you remember what grace is? Grace is unmerited grace. It's not about being fair. We talked last week about what fair is. The Bible says that if God uh, administers justice, it means every single one of us would be sent to hell because justice is getting what we deserve. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, as we saw, there is none righteous, no, not one. So justice would be not that even one person gets into heaven or that one of you gets a $100 bill from me because you did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. The mere fact I gave even one person one bill means that I'm gracious because I've given unmerited favor. Now, mercy, as we saw last time, is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. And what that means is when our life was over, that would just be this into our existence because we would not exist in eternity separated from God. But the Bible says we have been created in the image of God. We are eternal which is why people will be separated from God for all eternity who are not believers. Now, grace, grace is the fact that God welcomes even one person. The fact that he even let one person come to faith in his son, drawing him or her to him means that God is gracious. This is how the Bible describes it in Romans. Romans nine fourteen through 16 says, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? And when you see may it never be, that's a double negative in the Greek text. May genoite, it's the strongest way to say absolutely not. Paul says, may it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. This is God at work. He goes on in that passage to describe a guy by the name of Pharaoh. Remember him? He was the king of Egypt who had the Jews in slavery and all the things. And as he continues in Romans 9, he says in verses 22 through 26, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he also called, there's our word, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. 
As you keep reading in the book of Ephesians, when you get to chapter 2, verses 11 and following, there Paul will outline how those of us who are Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews. We have people here at Wayside who are Jewish by birth and background, and they've come to faith in the Savior. They're called uh, Messianic Jews completed. They've understood Jesus is the promised Messiah. But most of us are Gentiles. And as you read Ephesians 2, 11 and following, what it tells us is those of us who are Gentiles were separate from the covenants of promise for the nation of Israel. It says we were separate, far from God, without hope. It says we had no part in the inheritance God had for his people, the Jews. And it says that the mere fact that God allowed us in to be grafted in as Gentiles, in with the promises of God, again shows the the graciousness, the mercy of God. As you look at how we're saved, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 will tell us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Again, that idea of mercy, going to the next level of grace, unmerited favor. Now again, this is where some will say, But Roger, it's not fair that everyone's not saved. Do you really want fair? Do you remember what we talked about, what justice is? Justice means not a single person in the totality of eternity would ever be home with the Lord in heaven. There is none righteous, no, not one, says Romans 3.10. And so we don't want fair. Because fair is, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we come to Christ, instead of getting what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve, grace, mercy, eternal life. You know, the mystery of divine election is not that God passes over some. It's that God chooses any one person to begin with. The mystery of divine election is not that God passes over over some. It's that he chooses anyone. And that's what we need to grasp about this great doctrine. It shows God's grace. If you read the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. There's a translation called the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in it, we find this word, electos, that we've been talking about, this doctrine of election that's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verses 6 through 8, it tells how God chose his people, Israel, to be his chosen people. And this is what Deuteronomy 6 and following says. For you are a people to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord has loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. What it's telling us here is that that God, as he chose the people of Israel, and we're about to see as he chose us, is not about the old schoolyard ritual where, you know, the captain kind of stands there and looks at you and goes, really, you're not very strong, you're not very fast, Uh, I choose this one and that, and, you know, you're sitting there kicking the dirt going, well, I hope I'm not the last one again to be chosen. That's not how God chose us. As you look at the New Testament, it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, For consider your calling, brethren. 
that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no one should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you remember what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 said? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And it goes on and it says, so that no one should boast. God did not choose you or me because we were good enough, great enough. We were all sinners. It's all based upon his unmerited favor. There's no other reason for choosing us. Now, when it comes to when we are chosen, that's the why. Ephesians 1, 4 tells us he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, let me get a little technical just for a moment. So the glaze factor will be short. Don't check out. Here, the Greek word eklektos is in the aorist middle form. And what the aorist form means is it's a past completed action. So as Paul is writing this, he's telling us, as we've already seen in Romans 8:28 and following, that this was a decision made in the past that is complete. That's one factor of this. When it's in the middle form and it's tied in with us as the subject in the accusative case, what that means is God is both the actor and the one acting upon us, which again goes to show we had zero uh, of this process other than creating the need for sin. God is the one who drew us to himself. It says in verse 5, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The Greek word used here means to decide beforehand. Now, the reason I'm sharing all of this, that's the end of the technical stuff, is because when people see this doctrine of election, sometimes what they say is, well, God is omniscient. That's a word that means God knows everything. And they say God in his omniscience could look ahead and he would see that I, Roger, or you as a person would choose to become a believer on such and such date. And so what some misunderstand election to mean is God looked ahead to see who would choose him, and then he kind of came back here and he stamped our ticket, uh, and, and that's how we were called. Now, the problem with that is just what we talked about before. What it does is it elevates us to the place of God because what it says is our decision is what dictated God's decision. God is omniscient. He did look ahead. He knew what was to come. You know what he knew would happen? He knew we would sin. Remember, Adam and Eve's sin did not take him by surprise. As you read through Genesis, you see he already set up the plan of redemption. He said that the sun would come and the serpent would bruise his heel and the sun would crush his head. And that's talking about how when Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross, how Satan thought he won by killing the Messiah, but he didn't. The death of Jesus on the cross was the ultimate victory as that's how we were redeemed. So as you think in terms of God's omniscience, uh, what it means is God was sovereign and we are not. Remember in Romans 3.11, it said none would seek after God. So what God said is, I need to not only go after them, but I need to provide the way of redemption. It's why you read in Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, when we were in rebellion, when we were running from God is when he provided our redemption. That's where these two come together, this omniscience and the doctrine of God's election. Now, again, this is all part of grace. 
Now, the problem that some see with this is if God has already chosen those who are his, and if he says all will come to know him, then why do we even bother to evangelize? Have you ever thought that? Well, if everybody's going to come to faith in Christ who is uh, chosen, then why do we even bother? Well, let's go back to the Bible. In Romans 10, 13 through 14, it says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Have you ever stopped to think that you are part of God's preordained plan from the beginning of time? Not only in you as a believer coming to faith in Christ, but if you stop to think that God placed you in his plan alongside a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a classmate, maybe even what you think was a, a serendipitous meeting of a stranger on the street. And what God did was he chose you to be the method as the messenger to share the good news of the gospel. God has called on us to be those preachers, those messengers of grace, to share the good news with others. Now, you're sitting here maybe thinking, well, gosh, if that's the case and, and I'm disobedient and I don't share the gospel with my family member, friend, coworker, uh, military buddy, then they're going to be separated from God for all eternity because I fumbled the ball and didn't do it. Friends, you're not that good, okay? You can't override God and his decision. Do you remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem? And, and the people were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they were literally crying out, save us. They, they were saying Jesus was the Messiah coming in, and the religious leaders came to Christ, and they said, tell them to stop. They shouldn't be saying these things. And do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 19.40? He said, hey, if the people are silent, the stones will cry out. That says, I'm going to accomplish my plan with or without you. The problem comes when we don't take part in God's plan, it doesn't affect God's plan. It affects us personally. You know, I used the illustration of giving out hundreds earlier. So since I'm throwing money around this morning, uh, let me let me tell you that I put a couple $20 bills out around property. Now, I didn't, but imagine there you were walking through the courtyard. So if you found one, uh, bring it back to me. So if you walked by and you saw a 20 sitting in the courtyard or out in the foyer or maybe right where you're sitting and, and you reached down and you picked it up and you said, wow, a $20 bill, this is awesome, and you put it in your pocket, you got a reward, didn't you? You saw something and you acted on it and you said, I found it. Now, because you're saying, well, in church I would give the money back because somebody here lost it. Let's imagine you were walking down a street in a town you didn't know and, you know, it was an outlying area. And there's a 20 laying on the ground. And as you walk past it, you say, oh, there's a 20. I should pick it up now. And you walk by. Do you think the next person coming along behind you is going to see that 20 reach down and pick it up? Sure. And if that other person passes, somebody's going to pick up the 20. And whoever picks it up receives the reward. And so it is with the elect. God says there are people out there who will come to faith in me. And the Bible is very clear that when we have a part in leading somebody to the Lord, whether we're the person who prays for them, shares the gospel with them, gives money to support God's work that allows that person to hear, the Bible says we share in those eternal rewards in heaven. And if we pass by the opportunities God has presented to us, what happens is that person will come to faith. Remember, God will accomplish his plan, as we saw in Romans 8, 28 and following. 
But what happens is you and I miss out on that gift. Now, that understanding this about the doctrine of election helps me. Some people say, well, knowing about election means I don't share my faith. And I say, friends, you've missed it. Because me knowing about election actually motivates me to share my faith even more. And I'll tell you the reason, two reasons. One is I know that this is a target-rich environment, not just here at Waste. Anywhere I go, I know there are people who are the elect and will come to faith in Christ. The Bible tells me God has chosen people and he's drawing them to himself. Now, the Bible doesn't say there's a big stripe down any of our backs. I can't walk around and lift up your shirt tail and say, yep, this one's one of the elect I'm going to share with him or her. But I know there are people out there that are elect. And so what I do is I share the gospel with everybody as if they are the elect. And the second thing it does is it takes the pressure off me. Because I know some of you don't share your faith because you say, Roger, I'm going to mess it up so bad that that person will never come to Christ. Do you remember what I told you earlier about you're not that good? You're not going to keep somebody from coming to faith. Now, you can hinder them by a bad example or not being prepared. The Bible's clear we should be prepared to share the good news, and we should live our lives in a way that is congruent with that. But I'll tell you, the mere fact that God is the one who draws all men to himself, not me. Think of that electromagnet going over humanity out there, and periodically God is drawing people to himself. That frees me up to share the good news of the gospel, knowing that God is the one who is to do the work. I'm simply to be faithful and share the good news. Now, if you come from an Arminian position and you're saying, well, I like the idea of free will more than predetermined, uh, then think of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. D.L. Moody once said, pray for the elect and then some. You know, again, I don't know who the elect are. I don't grasp everything about the mystery of God's will, so I pray for all people to come to faith. Remember, Peter said, God desires that all should come to know him, so that's a, a regular prayer of mine. God, you say you want all people to come to know you, so would you draw Amy or John or Jose or, or you know, these other people that I don't have a relationship with to you? This is what election means. It's, a, it's a, a freeing doctrine for us because it says we are responsible to share the good news and God's the one who will draw people to himself. Now, how does God save us? Well, we see that in verse 7. It says, in him, this is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. As you look in the scriptures, there are different Greek words that are used to speak of our redemption. One of the words is agorazo. And agorazo is a term that means to buy something. And it was the picture of a person going out to a marketplace. And they would go from stall to stall and there were items that were there for sale. And they would see something they wanted and they would agorazo it. They would purchase it. And they'd put it in their basket. And they now owned it. They bought it. This is the word that is used uh, in 1 Corinthians 6.20. It says, For you have been bought, agorazo, with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So this picture of the word is we have been bought by Jesus Christ. And it says we are to glorify God in our body. Now, as you know, there are times as believers, we belong to Christ. We've been bought off the slave market, but we choose to fall back into sin, right? Sometimes we, we give back 
what is not ours to give back. We say, well, I'm going to live back in the, my old lifestyle of the world. See, that word agorazo had a limitation to it because imagine you were the person who owned something and you go down a couple more stalls and the vendor there or a person walking up the street says, oh, I, I, I tried to buy those back there and they're all out and, and I'm making a dinner tonight and I have to have that one item and I really need it. Could I buy that from you? And you say, well, it's kind of mine. I bought it and I, I want it. And you say, I'll give you five times what you paid for. And you go, okay, sold. And you sell it back. That's what we do sometimes. We sell ourselves back into the slave market of sin by how we live our lives. Now, we belong to Christ. As we talked about last week, remember the nail-scarred hands of Christ, John 10, 28 and 29 said, have closed around us. And God the Father, has. he doesn't give us back. But we, in our free will, can determine our journey with Jesus, and we can live in ways that are not honoring to God. So there's a stronger Greek word that speaks of our relationship with Christ, and that word is ekagorazo. And that's where the preposition out is attached to that same word to buy or purchase. And what it literally means is we have been bought out of the slave market. This is the word that you find in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us, there's that word, ekagorazo, out of the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When Jesus went to the cross, he bought us. He paid for us. Remember in John 19.30, it says, as Jesus died, he said, to tell us day, literally paid in full. He said, I bought you. I redeemed you. You are mine. I will never give you up. You belong to me. And this is that word that we've been bought with a price through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there's an even stronger word, apolutrosin, and that's the word we find here in Ephesians today. Apolutrosin is a word that, that speaks of being redeemed as well. But it was used not just of the freeing of slaves or others who owed a debt, but it also described those who had no hope of redeeming themselves. No hope. You'll recall as you read through the Bible, it talks about people who would be sold into slavery or, or as debtors. But then there was something that came along called the year of Jubilee where people would be set free at a point in time. All debts were forgiven. All slaves were released. All people were set free. And that was fine within the Jewish system, but what if you were a prisoner of war where a foreign pagan people came in and captured you and carried you back as a slave? And they said, we don't, we don't care about the law. We don't care about the year of Jubilee. And so you were, you were a slave and you were owned and you, you had no hope of ever being released. But people could come in and they could pay a ransom price. They could in you. They could literally buy you Back, They could redeem you and set you free. And this is the word. It means to be liberated by having the ransom price paid to set them free. A price they were incapable of paying to free themselves. Incapable of paying to free ourselves. We owed a penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. We could not pay that penalty. But it tells us here in Ephesians 1.7, Christ came and he paid that penalty. He redeemed us. He paid the cost. That's what we're going to remember and celebrate today as we come to the communion table. As we come to the communion table this morning, what it reminds us of is the ransom price that was paid. It tells us how we, who were sinners, we who owed a penalty, 
and were separated from God, we who were far from Christ and had no hope of redemption, we who could not pay that penalty ourselves, had someone come who ransomed us, someone who took our place, someone who went to the cross named Jesus Christ. It says there in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have the redemption through the shedding of His blood. He became our ransom price. He paid to set us free. If you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a person who says, you know, I've known about God, I've, I've come to church, I've read the Bible some, but I've never come to that point in time where I've turned from my sin into Jesus to be my Savior, this morning you have that opportunity. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You can do it right where you're sitting. In a moment, the elements are going to be passed and you're going to see a piece of bread representing the body of Christ and you're going to see a cup representing His blood. And as those elements come by, if you're a person who's ready to receive Jesus as your Savior, take those elements, pick up the bread, take the cup, and say to God, God, this morning I'm turning from my sin into you to be my Savior, Jesus. I'm accepting your death in my place. I believe you paid that ransom price to set me free. And I accept your gift of grace this morning. And as you take those elements, the Bible says you will be uh, made a child of God. You will come into the family. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Now, many of us here this morning have already come to faith in Christ, and there are times we've walked away from him. We've not lived as we should, and the Bible tells us that while we still belong to Christ, we've damaged our relationship. And this table is a reminder of how that relationship is restored through our Savior, Jesus, who died for us. And he says that we are to confess our sins, not to be saved once again, but to restore the relationship. So take this time this morning as the elements are passed to do that, to confess your sins to God, to ask for his forgiveness again, not to be saved, but to renew the relationship. You don't have to be a part of Wayside as a member. You just have to be a part of the family of God to partake in this table. So we invite all who are believers to uh, take the elements. I ask that you take those and hold them, and we'll take them together in a moment. Will you serve us, please? In our hand, we hold a piece of bread. But it represents so much more. It represents Jesus Christ. Sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be brought to the temple to pay for the sins that had been committed. And those sins uh, were not removed. They were just covered temporarily. The Bible tells us that those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats and the other things that were offered, it said were simply a temporary covering. They could not remove that penalty. But then Jesus Christ came. And as Jesus came to John the Baptist that day in the wilderness, you'll recall he pointed to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to be that payment, that ransom, the one who would remove our penalty, the one who as he died on the cross said, It is finished, paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Savior, died to give us that gift of grace, seated in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup. And this is just grape juice to us, but what it represents is something, again, far more precious. In the book of Peter... 
He talks about the precious Lamb of God, the blood that was shed in order to remove our sins. This is what apolutrosin does. This is what redeemed us. This is what bought me and you out of the slave market. This is what set us free never to again be sold back. God died so that we could live, not just on this earth and have freedom in our life, but so that we could live with Him for eternity. Here we hold a reminder of the gift and the grace of God, the blood of Jesus Christ that has washed away our sins, drinking in remembrance of Him. Join me, please, as we close in prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder this morning of what you did to save us, how you spared no expense, but you yourself came and you paid that ultimate price, going to the cross to redeem us, to buy us out of the slave market once and for all, to move us from being those who were far from you to moving us into your family, inviting us to live with you for all eternity in your home in heaven. Father, as those who have come to understand the gift of grace, would you use us as the messengers of grace to go out and share the good news with those who are around us who maybe don't yet know your son? Would you help us, Lord, to be those messengers of grace? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.